This week on Policy, Guns and Money's Bigger Picture series, Fergus Hansen speaks to Sir Nick Clegg, Vice President of Global Affairs and Communications at Meta. They discuss the greatest tech challenges currently facing the international community and how governments in the private sector can better collaborate on these issues going forward. This is Policy, Guns and Money, the ASPE podcast with me, Olivia Nelson. Thank you for joining us on the ASPE podcast. I'm Fergus Hansen, the Director of the International Cyber Policy Centre here at ASPE. We're extremely fortunate to have Sir Nick Clegg joining us today. Sir Nick is the Vice President of Global Affairs and Communications for Meta. Previously, he served the people of the United Kingdom as Deputy Prime Minister from 2010 to 2015. In 2018, he received a knighthood in recognition of his political and public service He also established the think tank Open Reason, which examines issues pertaining to drugs policy and the fourth industrial revolution. From 1994 to 2004, he worked as a senior advisor in the European Commission, and between 1999 and 2004, he was a member of the European Parliament. So Nick is the best-selling author of Politics Between the Extremes and How to Stop Brexit and Make Britain Great Again. He will also be speaking on a Sydney Dialogue panel this Friday with the foreign ministers of both India and Australia. If you want to catch that panel, please register on our City Dialogue website, tsd.aspi.org.au, and tune in at 1pm on Friday. Nick, thank you so much for joining us. It's great to be with you. The City Dialogue is all about the big emerging technology challenges. So my first question to you is, what do you see as the biggest emerging challenges when it comes to technology, governance, and maintaining democratic values? Well, first, of course, there are so many challenges. It's tricky to pick out one from many of the others, but they range, as you know, from this burgeoning debate around how to regulate big tech, particularly big American and big Chinese tech companies, which now hold so much sway over so much of our everyday lives. There's obviously a really vexed debate around safety versus content moderation, where you have you know, ferociously polarized debates, most especially where I'm, you know, where I'm now living and working in the United States, but elsewhere as well, between some people who think that we should be societally removing and censoring much more speech in the name of, of safety and civility, and other people saying no, you know, within the boundaries of the law, people should be able to kind of more or less say and express themselves as they wish. So I I think, you know, those are really tricky, tricky issues. And I mean, clearly the pendulum has swung quite violently almost from a few years ago from this kind of frothy tech utopianism, which we look back on as perhaps somewhat naive, but this belief that, you know, tech and all the things that these companies in Silicon Valley were inventing were going to be the, you know, the solution to all of our problems. And now the pendulum has swung almost the other way. And there isn't a single problem anywhere from climate change to an election outcome you don't like, from you know, adolescent well-being to, to, to hate speech, which isn't blamed on those very same technologies. So I think all of that is true. But if I had to single out one, the one that I worry about the most is the thing that I actually think is receiving far too little attention at the moment, certainly from policymakers in in large parts of the democratic world, and that's just the increasing fragmentation of the internet. What's called in the jargon, the rapidly evolving splinter net. 
you know, I keep saying this to folk, and it, I say it partly for effect, but it so happens to be true. We don't have a global internet. People keep talking about the global internet. It does not exist. You have the kind of internet that you and I are familiar with, Fergus, the sort of open internet, a lot of it pioneered by American companies and based on, broadly speaking, on small L liberal democratic values. But you have a completely different paradigm, pioneered most especially in China, of a heavily surveilled, closed internet, very little individual privacy, heavy internal surveillance and so on. And if you had to ask yourself which one is on the rise most rapidly, you'd probably have to argue it's the latter. Because for many other authoritarian and semi-authoritarian countries, the Chinese model of the internet is a pretty successful one. And it delivers both benefits of economic prosperity, but also political control, which is what a lot of people want in many jurisdictions around the world. And I just think we are in danger to wake up one morning and, and say, oh, wow, the global internet doesn't exist anymore. It's been balkanized, fragmented, divided up into different cake slices because of national laws governing, you know, how data is held and stored, how content is censored and monitored. And I do think there's a very pressing need for democracies around the world to get their act together and really establish some basic global multilateral rules of the road. So, I mean, if we're looking at how do we preserve a free and open internet and set this multilateral framework If you were casting ahead a decade or so, what would a free and open internet look like for you? And what are the challenges to a free and open internet? They come in many shapes and sizes. So some of them are fairly obvious and pretty stark. So demands by intrusive interventionist governments to censor the speech of their own citizens. We are on Facebook, and I'm sure the same is true for Twitter and and, and YouTube and and other social media platforms. We are often put under remorseless pressure by authoritarian or semi-authoritarian systems to vet speech, which to you or I, Fergus, would be plain vanilla, normal, everyday speech, but is considered to be undesirable by the political powers that be. So that's one obvious manifestation. Another obvious manifestation, perhaps less well-known, though, is a growing fashion amongst many countries. And by the way, this is not only wielded by authoritarian or semi-authoritarian jurisdictions. You see it amongst democracies democracies as well. And this is the the talk of what they call data localization. And again, it can sound quite benign. You can say, well, you know, surely... And I'm, I'm making this up, by the way, for effect, but it's not, it's not a true case. But, you know, you could say, um, well, all data for Australians should be kept in Australia and only Australian government should be able to access that data. And how dare Facebook hold, uh, you know, the, the data of, uh, of Australians on its own servers in somewhere else? And of course, that, sound, that might sound intuitively attractive. It's, in fact, a very dangerous precedent because the moment you lock data down geographically, you, you destroy the whole point of the internet, which is that it's open and that data flows across borders. And you even now have an argument amongst democracies, which also could lead to the accelerating splintering and fragmentation of the internet. I mean, look at the argument that is raging between the US and the EU around the legal underpinning of data flows across the Atlantic. It's a very arcane debate. It flows from some court cases handed down by the European Court of Justice. It's to do with something called Privacy Shield, which was a, an agreement between the EU and the US, which governed how data not only flowed across the internet, but also how particularly American intelligence agencies were able to access data you know, under certain circumstances. And that was deemed to fall foul of 
European data protection law. And there is now a risk. I hope it's a risk which is receding because both sides are saying that they're negotiating now to try and come up with a solution. But there is a risk. There is a risk. The legal underpinnings, which allow for the free flow of data between the EU and the US, could collapse. And then you, you know, there would no longer be the legal basis for, I don't know, a COVID testing agency to use servers on the other side of the Atlantic or a bank's, you know, human resources department to use payroll, outsource that to some data cruncher on the other side of the Atlantic. I mean, it, data flows, of course, across the Atlantic as it does around the world in vast volumes every millisecond of the day. So in other words, the threats to the open internet range from overt political censorship to a failure of the democracies to align on the legal norms required for the continued open flow of data. And my own view is, and I've come to this view over the last two or three years, is that these threats are now so great and the challenge from the alternative paradigm, sort of Chinese-style paradigm, is so acute that there is, I think, a, a both an industrial, political and geostrategic logic and need for some of the main techno-democracies around the world to align on some of the foundational principles which everyone should sign up to, to keep the global internet open and free for their citizens. Open data flows, you know, a constraint on censorship and so on, uh, guarantees of privacy and certain digital rights that individuals should have in the online world, and enshrine that in new treaties, enshrine that in perhaps new institutions, a bit like the way, you know, the Bretton Woods institutions underpinned the open post-war economic order after the ravages of protectionism in the 20s and 30s. And that's why, you know, I believe that it is time for a Bretton Woods moment in the governance of the global internet. Well, that sounds quite an interesting proposal. So if we were going to have a Bretton Woods proposal, that system, you know, depended on a particular international circumstance where you had things like limited international capital mobility and the, the dominant economic position and financial position of the United States. Is it your view that democratic states have this weight and unity to pull this off now? And what would that Bretton Woods-style agreement look like? Is it those things around agreement on the, the key principles you mentioned? And is there a need for a governing body like with the World Bank or its precursors to oversee this? Is that what you have in mind when you talk about a Bretton Woods moment and system? Well, of course, that famous meeting in that secluded hotel in Bretton Woods took place in the aftermath of the war, of, of absolute global catastrophe. And no one would wish us to have to sort of institutionally innovate with that kind of catalyst. I very much hope we'd be able to arrive at that wisdom, if I can put it like that, without first having to experience cataclysmic failures. You know, I don't want to sort of hyperventilate about this. I don't think the fragmentation of the internet can be compared to the Second World War, but I equally don't want us to understate how much prosperity and freedom will be foregone if we don't protect the global internet. And this is where, you know, my old world politics of course, comes in in a big way. All of the political energy, totally understandable, totally understandably, is now all about cutting these big tech companies down to size, holding them to account. There's a very strong instinct, which I totally understand, of the political community wanting to assert political sovereignty over the kind of private sector wealth and sheer scale of, of companies like the one I work at and so on. I totally get all of that. But one of the problems is that if all your energy is in how to kind of, you know, clip the wings of the private sector players who have, through their innovation, through their investment, 
helped to build this astonishing global infrastructure, you don't spend much time as a politician, if that's your primary focus, on working out what you might end up unwittingly sacrificing if you don't protect the global internet that, for better or for worse, these companies have been at the forefront of building in the first place. And so I'm no longer in politics, but I was you know, very active in politics for close to two decades. And Politics is like anything else in life. There's only so many hours of the day. There's only so many things you can focus on. There's only so many things you can really invest your energy in. And whilst I understand all the energies about, as I say, taking these big companies down a notch or two, they've got too big for their boots and all the rest, I get all of that. I really do. And I think you can do both. I think you can both regulate the private sector whilst also at the same time underpinning the fundamentals of an open global internet. And at the moment, all the political debate is on the former and almost none of it is on the latter. And I think that's a great shame. I think we're we're in danger, in other words, of throwing the baby out with the bathwater in our rush to seek entirely understandably to introduce new rules on the road to hold the private sector to account. We're forgetting that you also need new rules of the road to keep the very openness of the internet guaranteed for future generations. Well, that's actually one of the reasons why we wanted to convene the Sydney Dialogue was the increasing tension that we saw between the tech industry and governments. And this seemed highly problematic when many emerging technology issues had become geopolitical. To succeed in the the big upcoming tech races, it seemed like cooperation between industry and government is actually essential to winning those races. So for me, there's always going to be some disagreements when it comes to major new technologies. But how do you think companies and governments can actually work better on these tech policy problems that are inevitably going to come up? I mean, I strongly agree. It's one of the reasons I I moved, if you like, from European and British politics to living and working in Silicon Valley, precisely because I think you need to build bridges between these two worlds. The easiest thing to do, which is what a lot of people do, is they just throw stones at each other. So people in politics say, yeah, boo. I think Silicon Valley is too big for its boots. These people need to be brought to heel. And people in Silicon Valley complain, oh, these wretched politicians, they know nothing about technology. They're so slow. They're not legislating. They're not getting their act together. That's the easy bit. And you can read about that in the newspapers every day of the week around the world. It's like lots and lots of endless commentary and noise about, oh, this is just yelling at the problem. And I couldn't agree with you enough, Fraser. We've got to get beyond this. I think the comforts of yelling at the problem and actually rolling up our sleeves and actually doing something about it. And of course that involves, yes, it involves legislation. Yes, it involves regulatory action. It involves the industry working more cooperatively together as well, because, you know, a lot of these industrial players are very, you know, ferociously competitive with each other. And I think we're starting to see some real useful innovations. I mean, if you look at the way in which I was very involved on behalf of the Meta, but, you know, with my counterparts in Google and Microsoft and, and, and elsewhere, where we, where we created this global internet forum to counter terrorism, not least in the aftermath of that terrible attack and atrocity in Christchurch. You know, the benefits of that are now very significant, not just for the industry, but for governments as well. We now have by far the world's most sophisticated shared, you know, hash sharing database, which helps lift the capability of everyone to detect terror content and act, you know, when terrorist incidents happen. We're also a founding member of the Technology Coalition, which is an alliance of leading tech firms which have come to be- together to build tools and, and promote programs that protect children from online sexual exploitation and abuse. We've helped create the Digital Trust and Safety Partnership, which is, again, a multi-stakeholder arrangement to, to build a safer, more trustworthy internet. 
At Meta, we built our own independent oversight board composed of wholly and impeccably independent figures, former prime minister, former Nobel Prize laureate, scholars, former journalists, and so on, to adjudicate independently on content disputes, which take place on Facebook and Instagram, and so on. We call for regulation. We've published white papers. We think you need regulation in areas like privacy and data portability and elections and, and so on, and, and indeed content standards. I kind of hope we can strike the right balance between the kind of antagonism which you understandably see as governments and regulators feel that they need to respond to legitimate societal concerns about whether the right safeguards are in place, whether the private sector is discharging its obligations of you know, responsibility, accountability and transparency. I just hope we can marry that with a mature conversation about how regulation would actually operate in practice online. Because at the end of the day, it's the companies themselves do know best how their systems operate and what guardrails do and don't work. There's no point for legislators over the next couple of years to pass legislation, which just simply doesn't make you know, sense in practice. And as you know, we had a major, un unhappily controversial episode in Australia where regulation about news publishers and news content circulating online led to, you know, we didn't, we didn't likely choose to do this, but we felt as a company we were being put in a position where the regulation made so little sense compared to actually how news circulates on, on certainly on our platforms. We don't seek it. We don't ask for it. It's only a tiny, tiny, it's, what is it, less than 4% of anything you see on Facebook. And yet we were, at least in this example, I only take it as an example, not, not to single anybody out, but it's just an example where the regulation, the, the objective it was, was totally laudable, but it made so little sense because it misunderstood it or almost reversed the roles about the value exchange between social media platforms and news publishers. News publishers get much more out of that than we do because they, they voluntarily post content on Facebook to reach their own customers. And that whole thing was being flipped around. And that was, you know, obviously we then get berated and everyone gets terribly angry and people set up in parliament and condemn us for how do you, you know, how dare you do this? But the fundamental thing that went wrong was that regulators and technologists were not listening to each other. And so regulation was being rushed through with a great deal of kind of, you know, egged on, of course, politically in from the publishers and so on, and then applied to a technological ecosystem, which just bore no relationship to the way the regulation was designed. And so that you had these standoffs, and I think very important changes were made, and hopefully we can settle down to a more productive relationship. But just a good example where, yes, regulation, but let's also try and craft regulation in a way that goes with the grain of how technology actually works. I'm going to wrap up in one moment, but I just wanted to summarize in what you were saying with in terms of the multilateral initiatives you listed, the, the Christchurch call and others, the oversight board, is the difference between those multilateral initiatives and, well, maybe the oversight board isn't necessarily in that category, but is the difference between that and the Bretton Woods proposal that you had that they're all very nichely focused around counterterrorism or particular areas and the Bretton yeah. Woods agreement would be about forging principles of an open internet. Is that the key difference that we're talking about here? Yeah, totally. And I'm not nearly uh, smart enough to be able to give you a fully formed pre-cooked version of what I think a sort of Bretton Woods institutional setup for the internet would look like in detail. But I have a strong instinct that what you need is something which entrenches legally and institutionally some inviolable principles of how the global internet operates. Privacy of the individual, user rights, or sort of digital rights that individuals have, open data flows 
across borders, transparency and accountability by which the systems are operated, strict limits on the amount of sort of intrusive censorship that either governments or industries should be making in terms of the speech, the legal speech that people post themselves online. You know, those seem to me some really obvious principles that are really in danger at the moment. And unless there is a critical mass of techno-democracies, the EU, the US, India, Australia, Brazil, other, you know, other major players, Japan, unless they come together and say, yeah, we're going to agree to all of that, we're not going to pass any domestic legislation which conflicts with those principles, and we're going to work in concert to make sure that we will guarantee all of that to each other, I do worry that the alternative route is, by accident, by the way, just as much as by design, is one of accelerating fragmentation. Well, it's some great thoughts for the Sydney Dialogue coming up. Well, so Nick, thank you so much for joining us on the ASPE podcast. It was an absolute pleasure having you. Well, thank you very much. Thanks so much. That's all we have time for this week on policy, guns and money. Don't forget to join the Sydney Dialogue's discussions on tech policy this week. Visit tsd.aspi.org.au to view the live streams. We'll be back with another episode soon.